So it's Monday night, April 11th, and I'm going to give you kids out there some great writing advice. Get the fuck off of Twitter. Not permanently, not even for a month or a week or even a day. But when you're writing and you need to focus, shut it down. If that means removing the app from your phone, do so. If that means investing in one of those internet block programs, I use something called Freedom. Go for it. Because writing isn't a stop, write, stop, look away, look away again, stop, write, write, stop, read about Brooklyn Decker's wedding, write, stop, tweet about Mike Pence, stop, write some more, sort of thing. A writer needs flow, continuity. So again, get the fuck off of Twitter and get to the creating. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Kostya Kennedy, my long ago Sports Illustrated colleague and the New York Times bestselling author of a fantastic new book that drops today, True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. This is episode number 255. Let's sling some yay. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Kostya. So um, I was thinking about something when I was, we were struggling to get this Zoom thing fixed up. Like, um, we met at Sports Illustrated. So I started there in at the tail end of 1996. You'd been there. What year did you get there? 94. Okay. So we were both new. Um, we're at SI. And at the time, you know, if you want to do a story and it was approved, you fly somewhere, stayed in a nice hotel. Expense report was money. They had the big SI parties at the end of the year. Everything was awesome. It was great. And now we're, we're, we're talking via two computers, struggling to get our Zoom working for this thing called a podcast. I feel like time hasn't been great. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I mean, the, the crash of the American magazine industry combined with the COVID-19 pandemic leaves us where we are today. um wait i'm I'm actually curious because i never i i i'm sure we talked about this in a distant life but um when i came to si i knew your name because i knew every name on the masthead like i knew every writer i knew every editor i knew every reporter i knew absolutely everyone at sports illustrated when i arrived at sports illustrated um for me that was my dream job working there uh same for you or no well, I love Sports Illustrated for sure. I don't know if I had, if I say no, it's only because I don't know that I had identified particularly a dream job, but I was thrilled to be there for sure. Uh, no question. And, and you know, what you were referring to earlier, you get an idea for a story, you, you get to go and do it. You have the access you need in those days. You have the um, materials you need, you have, you have resources, you can you know, write the way you want to write. I mean, it was, it was incredible. It was great. And plus, you know, you got to see some of the country too, especially the young single person. You weren't necessarily rushing home for, for a family and what a great life it was. Wait, what was the most, before I get into the books, what was your most random story you wrote when you were at SI? Oh man, that's a good question. Um, I, I should have prepared for this with some, uh, I did, I, you know, we do those ad tech stories, that, which were, that's really inside baseball in the language. But, um, and I did a story on this, this sort of all boys school out in the 
I think it was the Nevada, Utah, out in, in Utah, and they had, they had sort of recruited, I'm, I'm doing air quotes, um, in a way they shouldn't have a lot of uh, kids from, from the inner city and from city to play on their basketball team. They, they shouldn't have. They were giving these kids great opportunity and a great foothold in life, but by their sort of basketball league standards, it wasn't that kosher. Anyway, but I went out and did a story on this team, and it was more on the positive. It was more on how these kids were going out there and riding horseback. You know, they grew up in, in the Bronx, could really play ball, and now they're riding horseback and, and, you know, farming near a cactus. And then three times a week or twice a week, whatever it was, they played basketball in this really avid high school basketball community. That, that was pretty, pretty interesting. I just want to say, so ad text for people who would know, which is 99.9% of people listening, they would run these stories. I've talked about this before in the podcast. You could pitch these stories and they'd run in, I don't know, 30% of issues maybe. And they would only be in, they'd appear in the front of the magazine. Myra Galband was the editor. You could pitch random ideas. My most random by far was I did a profile of Vanilla Ice because it was a motocross racer. Now he hadn't really raced motocross in several years, but I desperately wanted to do a Vanilla Ice story. So I did go to Miami and hang out with Vanilla Ice at a motocross track. And uh, he wasn't getting enough coverage in those days. He was not. He had faded. Uh, Yeah, that's really cool. Um, All right. So so you have a book out. It comes out. This podcast drops on Tuesday. It actually comes out today, which is April 12th. Uh, True. The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. Um, This is going to sound weird. And I hope this doesn't sound condescending. You are a freaking beautiful writer. Like you write books. I couldn't touch it. Like I couldn't, you write artistically, you write these books and they're beautifully artistic and they're poetic and you rely very little on quotes. It's a lot of sort of in a way your thoughts, but the observations of the times woven into a narrative, it's seamless. It's go- It's really gorgeous. Um, and I guess I kind of, I guess it's a big broad fat question. When you sit down to write these things, do you have a certain mindset as you approach uh, pen to keyboard, like a way you want to go about this? Well, thank you for all that you're saying. That, that's nice, nice to hear and, and nice for you to say. I, I mean, um, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know if I've thought about it that way. You're trying to tell the story in uh, an appealing, engaging way. I mean, this is, I'm sure what you do and what, what everybody does, right? Trying to, tell it in a way that makes sense to me and makes sense to the reader. I'm not sort of consciously um, not using quotes or yes, using quotes. I'm trying to use them when they make sense. Um, And I'm just, I I guess, I guess you, I am trying to to have a voice or not necessarily trying, but a, a voice come through as you sit and, and peck away. Uh, sometimes it doesn't come through till the third or fourth uh, shining or, or the 18th or 19th um, re-edit of it. But so I guess, I guess I'm after a voice in some sense. I'm trying to tell the story as, as personally, I mean, clearly is, is totally crucial, of course, and engagingly. I, I don't know if it's, if, it's, if it's different than that, really. I want to read a little bit. You wrote on, a, on page 77. You wrote about the summer of 1949. I'll explain the book a little more. But you wrote, um, this is Jackie Robinson a couple years into the majors. And you said, you could see it. The new dialed up aggressiveness, a willingness to taunt a pitcher verbally from the base paths, to bristle at an umpire on a tight play, 
to hurl an expletive toward the mound after yet again being hit by a pitch. Just a week before the All-Star game against the Phillies at Ebbets Field, there'd been a class with schoolboy row. It was a night game, Tuesday, July 5th, and Ken Heitzelman was pitching for Philadelphia. The Phillies led 7-2, to and Heitzelman had not allowed a run since the first inning by the time Robinson came, off, uh, came up to lead off the ninth. Schoolboy Rowe was in the Phillies' dugout. He had moved to the front step so he could be heard. Knock him down, Schoolboy Rowe yelled out to Heintzelman. Stick it right in his fucking ear. The Phillies had never been kind to Robinson. Since he came into the league, they'd pretty much been the worst. And then you go into Rowe's background. I'm actually really fascinated by this entire thing. So you're writing about something that happened um, almost 70 years ago, more than 70 years ago, in fact. Um, most of these people are dead. A couple are alive. Some are probably senile. Just even in that little, the little thing, right? It was a night game, July 5th. Ken Heitzelman pitching for Philly. The Phillies led 7-2. to Heitzelman hadn't run, uh, allowed a run since the first. Schoolboy Rowe is in the dugout. He moved to the front step. He yells, knock him down. He yells, stick it right in his fucking ear. How are you getting that info? Like, to me, I rely on 500, 600 interviews. That's my money, money stuff. Yep. How do you do that? How do you report like that when you don't have the benefit of all these people being alive? Yeah. So in that case, you know, and I tried, I definitely used interviews for a certain sections of the book. In that case, one thing that we had then that we don't really have now was a swarm of newspapers covering every game, covering the day after every game, covering two days after every game. So they were filling newspapers. There were the New York papers and it's got played up. It's a little, it's a little bit of a blip. Um, in, the, in the whole narrative of, of Robinson. But for those two or three days, if you were alive and reading the paper in 1949, this was the big story. You know, did, did you hear about what happened with Jackie and the Phillies last night or, or two nights ago? It took a little while also for things to get places. Like there was a, always a ripple effect. It wasn't like, did you hear about the slap at the Oscars 90 seconds ago? So, um, so that's really what I relied on. And, and they describe the things I'm, I'm reading, I, I wrote about. Often what I do, Jeff, is like, you know, you're getting it from different sources and now you're piecing it together in the way you want to tell it. So the person who, who I I'd have to go back and look how this actually came together, but the reporter who wrote Knock Him Down or the manager who report, said to a reporter, yeah, all he did was say, knock him down. Might not have been the same reporter who said, by now, Heinzelman had moved to the top of the dugout, right? So you're piecing it together. A lot of it, sometimes I feel a little like, uh, you're, you're, it's such a cliche metaphor, but they are little puzzle pieces and you're looking for the right piece to get here. And because I had enough reporting there, that's what enabled the scene to get into the book. Right. So it, it it's a it's a scene and there are others that I felt was illustrated the way Jackie was that year and illustrated the tension that could attend his being on the field. But if I didn't have it, it wasn't indispensable to the book. So sometimes you're you're relying on the fact that I could get so much around here was why I made it in the book. A similar incident might have happened three or four days earlier and it wasn't as much coverage of it. So I don't have it. It's just lost to time or certainly lost to me. And are you a newspapers.com fanatic? Yes, newspapers.com. Definitely have that. <laughs> no question. Uh, it, which is incredible and awesome. But it doesn't have everything, as I'm sure you've seen, right? So I also go through libraries. Um, 
the the various search engine ProQuest. Um, I didn't use LexisNexis as much for this one, but of course I've used that in the past. Uh, so yeah, looking looking for all those kind of sources and, and certainly newspapers.com is a is a very important one. Are you still a microfilm guy? Will you still go to libraries and use microfilm? Well, I, I, I yes, although I did that a lot less because of COVID. Um, and there's also a lot more stuff that is one way or another gettable. Um, and I did get some help from librarians who would uh, get me material and send me the clips. So I did that a lot. You know, and, and people should know you can use your local library. You know, I used among many other sources, but the Westchester library system, which you may have used for some of your books when you were here was very valuable. I was glad to have it, you know? Um, and especially like that time, 1949 is even, of course there was no sports illustrated. It's not, a, there was newspapers were really the deal. There were, of course, you know, there was look magazine and there were uh, life magazine, of course. Um, and for the section of the book that takes place in Canada, there were some, McCall's and other places up there. So, but mainly with the printed word that I was relying on. So to be a little simplistic, you, you basically divide the book into four periods of Jackie Robinson's life. And I guess that's not simplistic. That's actually what, it's actually what you do. <laughs> and um, as an example, since we were talking about 1949, you decide you're going to research 1949. Do you literally do a day by day newspaper search and build a collection of every article that's been written about Jack, how do you, how do you research? What are you doing in every technical detail to research that year? That's a great question. So I, w I wouldn't say I did every day because less anyone thinks it's, they, they take place in particular years, but it's not, and you know this, of course, it's not a day by day recitation of what happened in the year, of course, but I did, I mean, I looked, I kind of looked through each year and sort of have your antenna up and your eyes out and your ears open for, for stuff. And of course, there's so much stuff that you don't use. You're gathering and gathering and gathering and gathering and certain scenes sort of crystallize out that you decide to use. So you use three or four scenes over the course of the season to try to show what you want to show. So I wouldn't say that I, that I necessarily go through every day. It kind of in between that I'm really thinking about what I did in some ways I did. I kind of combed through each each day, but I didn't necessarily take notes on every day, go deep into every day. I sort of had to make a judgment at a certain point. Hey, maybe there's something here. Maybe there isn't. And you develop an instinct for that over time and you, you learn what to look for. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that's kind of how it went. So a disease I definitely suffer from. And I'm, so I'm going through edits right now. Of my, I have a Bo Jackson book and I'm going through edits of Bo, the I'm Bo Jackson book. To it. Thank you. And one of the diseases I have that I'm really aware during editing is when you're researching something, everything seems so important. Like every, oh my God, I have to write about this. And then later you're reading your own stuff and you're like, why the fuck did I write about this? It's that nobody's going to care about this. Do you have that too or no? Yeah, no, no question. And that's really um, crucial in the in the editing process. I, I'm not so shy. I'm not shy about putting it in when I'm writing my first draft for myself. I'm pretty, pretty vigilant about taking it out when I come back and, and look at stuff. I mean, I agree. The other thing that's interesting are just everything else, let alone like, Oh my God, I've put that story in, but the advertisements in, in the Montreal Gazette from 1946, like the 
lotion do you could get to put on your forehead and stuff. I mean, it's all so fascinating, you know, not to mention all the world and political stuff that, you know, just entertainment stuff. It's, it's just endlessly fascinating in, in many ways. So you do have to uh, rein yourself in. Wait, that's actually a wonderful point. Like I am um, when I'm doing research. All right. It's Memphis. Bo Jackson's playing minor league baseball in 1986. And you see you start you start seeing the outfield wall with all the advertisements at Tim McCarver Stadium in Memphis. And you start thinking in your head, I need to get some of this in there. I need to get some of this in there. And then I'll be reading my copy and I'll be like, well, why did I put this in there? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And then there's some stuff that just adds this texture. And then I find that I spent 10 days hyper-focused on the outfield wall at Memphis. And I, I just, I become like a crack addict. I don't even have a question. I just become a, are you a Jackie <laughs> Robinson crack addict by the end of the You should book? see somebody about that. Yeah. I think that, you know, like everything ultimately has to serve the narrative, right? So in my case, the, the, the advertisements on the wall at Ebbets Field, say, are a big part of the character of the place. And there's two things. One thing is that that's that's the truth. It's known, and and there 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 are those ads, and they speak of a time and place. The other thing is that some of the some of those ads are a little more famous, a little more in the lexicon than others. And I don't necessarily want to tell you once again. Oh, here's the Abe Stark sign, which says "Hit this sign and you win your suit." We all know that already, right? So what I would try to do in that case is I wait for the moment when it makes sense. And here's Robinson getting the last hit of his career, game six of the 1956 World Series, and it landed its one hop off the Schaefer beer sign, right? And there you have it. So I'm not trying to spend a lot of time saying, you know what, there was a Schaefer beer sign, and then there was, and that probably happened a few times throughout the narrative when it made sense as a way to orient people. And then I think you're kind of using that material to do two things. You're telling people there was a Schaefer beer ad, which for whatever that speaks of a time and place. And you're also positioning some, positioning the ball and positioning the fielder and positioning everything. So that's for me, the way I would say, I try to, uh, I guess, water down the crack, make it, make it serve a few different, yeah. serve a few different purposes. <laughs> Before we continue with two writers slinging in a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and I am so frustrated by my dog, Poppy. Why? She refuses to wear this Doug Flutie jersey I bought her at royalretros.com. I don't understand. Have you tried explaining it to her? I mean, she's just a dog. Poppy, listen to me. I know you've been frustrated by the past wardrobe choices. The thong was definitely a bad idea. So were the platform boots. But this jersey was special ordered for you, Poppy Perlman, from royalretros.com. It was made with the finest materials and symbolizes a glorious period in American sport. Now will you please go into the bitches fitting room and try it on? That was amazing. Finally, your tuition dollars pay off. Wait, do you, you've, so you've written this book, you've written DiMaggio, you've written Pete Rose, three sports books, three big biographies. One of my problems is as I read them, I care not that, my, my own books, not yours. I find myself being annoyed by how much sports I put in the books, which is weird because they're books about athletes. Are you the same way or do you feel like I want as much sport in this book as I can? Um, so I also, another book I did, which was different was um, on high school football where I followed a team for years. So very different, um, different um, process or 
experience. So my books, I would say the time and place were really important. And in some ways, my 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 DiMaggio book, some, when the, the early earliest reviews of it was sort of reviewing it almost as a social history uh, because it took place in the summer of 1941. It centered around his streak, but it's also you know, here come the Nazis in, in Europe and the kids are getting drafted and it, that environmental stuff became really important. So in some ways, it, it wasn't entirely sports. And I think that that's true. For me, what I'm trying to do is give enough baseball for somebody who loves baseball. You know, and people like us, we really know the sports. So I feel like I feel really comfortable conveying a scene as, as a writer of baseball. But also not so much that if you if you are interested in, hey, what was it like to be in Brooklyn in 1949? What was the impact that Jackie Robinson had? Obviously, well outside, you know, the, the lines of the game. Uh, that's what I want. I, the reader, want out of this book. I don't want to bog it down with too much sports. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find that balance uh, to give people kind of what they want and what they want. Um, and, and that's really, for me, and, and with maybe a little bit less of that in the P. Rose book, um, but still some of it, it was still kind of the 70s and 80s, you know, uh, were really important to it. And and that book, you know, had a little more of like a moral question, I guess, because it's always hovering around anything about Pete Rose, what people think about him. So each book is a little different, but but yeah, so that that's how it is for me. I think that they aren't entirely sports, they're clearly sports books, but they have something else in them too, which is part of what makes it interesting to me to write about. Right. Well, I want to say my favorite sentence in your entire book, by far, hands down, maybe one of my favorite sentences in the history of the written word. You wrote <laughs> on page 107, you wrote, you're talking about Don Newcomb, former Dodger pitcher. Uh, Newcomb could get distracted during games sometimes in on himself too much. And Robinson was given to trotting over to try to help set things right. He would urge Newcomb and not in gentle terms, to bear down and address the situation, period. And then you wrote, pull up your tits, man, which is the best sentence ever. Pull up your tits, man. And it's not a quote. It's you writing, pull up your tits, man. And I want to say, number one, it shows like a real comfort. It shows like a real, like, that is something, when I've taught journalism out here at a college, it is really hard to teach that thing. Like that thing, where you're comfortable writing, pull up your tits, man. Why did you write Pull Up Your Tits, Man? So I want to tell you one thing, Ashley, and I appreciate you like the sentence. It's not Pull Up Your Tits, Man. It's Pull Your Tits Up, Man. Oh, excuse me. Pull Your Tits Up, Man. Right. <laughs> and and it's funny because Pull Up Your Tits, one could argue that's more dramatically correct. Right. But nobody talks that way. Right? Nobody said that. Correct. And this is why. This is why I use that. Because when I talk to a lot of ball players. At that time. And so I had I had some advantage here that I had spoken to a lot of ballplayers of the era in doing my DiMaggio book. So I had and a lot of that stuff doesn't get in. As you know, you're doing a book like I had a whole raft of like notes and stuff that that was still kind of usable. And that was an expression that people use. And Erskine actually mentioned that, too, in a conversation that that was a, that was kind of you know, the kind of thing you say, hey, you know, they also say, like, don't be a panty waste. You know, like that kind of language. And to me, uh, you know, pull your tits up was something I heard those ball players say when they'd be telling, yeah, it gets tough sometimes, but, you know, pull your tits up. And um, 
I would never say that today. I would never <laughs> say it to somebody. Mixed company, not mixed company. I'd never say it to anybody. But we get it. We can totally imagine two athletes in, in the heat of the thing saying, hey, man, you know, topping up, basically. Freaking love it. I love it. I love it. Um, all right. So you, um, again, I mentioned the three big biographies you did. You've written four books. We wrote, you did Rose, you did DiMaggio, you did Jackie Robinson. Um, those are three books I would have never touched. Because I wouldn't, I'd, I'd look it over and I'd say, okay, number one, uh, they've been done. Like they have been written about a lot. Jackie Robinson has been around about a lot. Number two, he played and died a long time ago. Uh, and number three, I'm, I'm not sure what I would be able to add to the discussion of Jackie Robinson. I say that loving this book, but I ask, what makes you, Kasha Kennedy, when you're thinking about your next book and what I'm going to do, think Jackie Robinson, he needs a book. It, you know, it, um, in this particular case, Jeff, I think this was more, I need to write about Jackie Robinson than he, he needs a book. Um, I did really feel, and, and I've been, so I'm going to tell you a, a story about how I first got into baseball. I was, I was a, I was so young and I loved baseball and I was like, you know, would play with like a badminton racket and a beach ball, right? I was like too young to even like really use real things. And my mom, but I didn't know what team I liked. My mom decided to take me to Shea Stadium. And she's explaining, they were good guys then, by the way. Um, and she takes, she takes me out to the stadium. And really quick background, my, my mother's family had emigrated from Vienna and Czechoslovakia in 1938. And she's born in 39 and lives in Queens, but they don't know anything about baseball. There's no, they, my grandmother barely spoke English. There's none of that, right? Um, and she said, you know, when I was growing up, the Dodgers had a player named Jackie Robinson and none of the other teams let black players play. So we all became Dodger fans. And then she told me how the Dodgers had moved away and the Mets came in. And so I had that in my background. And then about, Eight years ago or nine years ago or something, I did a story on Rachel Robinson, um, his widow, for Sports Illustrated. And it was around that time, so I've consumed a lot of what's out there about Robinson also coming in, that I began to feel that there was, there'd been great biographies of him. So there's no, this, the fact that I felt that I could say something new and different is not meant at any kind of a slight on the really great work that's been done. But I did feel that there was a little bit of a gap when you really got into the material uh, between kind of a big soup to nuts biography and something that was not so particular. Not, that, then there were other pieces that were like very particular, like just about Jackie in 1947, say, or just about very specific things. And I felt there was a way to show his life that I was comfortable with that could have appeal to people and could could just express his story in a new way. It's, it's really what, what it was. And, 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 and I wanted to do it very much. So when you're shopping at St. Martin's Press end up running uh, as your publisher, um, how hard of a sell was it or was it not? It was not that hard of a sell. You know, the structure that we have, so it's, it's as you mentioned, it's four seasons. It's called the true, the four seasons of Jackie Robinson and the, the spring, summer, it, it's metaphorically the spring, summer, autumn, and winter of his, of his public life. Um, no, I mean, I was fortunate to have, have interest. I don't think it was, of course, there's some people who are like, Oh, you know, we've heard about Jackie, but I felt like in, in the proposal I did and 
you know, I, I think it's probably the same with you. I don't know where you're at now with when you're preparing for a book, but I put some time into that proposal. And if, if the proposal isn't working for me, it's not working, right? So it, it I, 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 I get it down. I, I, I want, when I sell the book, I want to have a, a clear path. I want to know what day one is because those early days are really rough, right? You, you got to get yourself going. And so I was able to sort of express this vision for it and, and it worked. And I'm sure there's some people who weren't interested in the book, but look, I mean, or I'm trying to think of other people, right? The, the people who get written about a lot and people find new ways and, and they can still be interesting. His story, in some ways, it's, it's, Everybody knows it, and in some ways, it's underrated. Like it, it's just one of those things. There's, there's so there's so much to it that I that it felt comfortable to find something new. And I think you know the, the publishing houses realized realized that there was something new there. Right. Wait. So I'm interested. I um the proposal is my least favorite part of any book process. I hate the proposal process with every passion, every piece of my body. I feel like I'm actually kind of lazy about it. Being honest, I don't think I write very good proposals. Um. Because I, because I don't like the idea that I'm going to work on this and nothing, nothing may come of it. And then I'll be, that'll be it. That'll suck. You obviously sound like a much better person than me. Like when you go about a proposal, are you doing the same digging you do when you're researching the book? Do you actually try to interview people when you work in a proposal? How do you go about it? A, a little, yeah, a little bit of interviewing. Um, it's more generalized, I would say, Jeff. And, and listen, if, if look, if, if my idea was for a, somebody that nobody had ever written about and it was a brand new story, maybe it would be a little different, but I knew I had to sort of find my voice in it. Um, I, I, I don't look at it as wasted work because I, I basically wrote like a chapter, not, not a big section, but I wrote maybe, you know, five pages that ended up in the book. Um, I mapped it out. And again, it gave me a way to get there. And I'm writing about something that, as I said, I, I wanted to write about, I, I, I attracted to the subject. So it wouldn't have been a waste. And I feel like any writing I do is going to ultimately make me a better writer, even if it didn't get in there. And there's certainly parts of the proposal, just like any other editing thing, which when it got down to it, I just threw it out, you know, like maybe whatever, a thousand words about this. And I was like, nationally, no. Um, but it's not better or worse. It's just, it's, it's how we all play these tricks with ourselves, right? To, to get ourselves going and, and kick ourselves in the butt. And it helps me in some way. I like that. There's no, it's just me and the proposal. There's no pressure on it. I don't have to be done next Tuesday. I could be done, you know, in a month or I can. And, and so I actually don't mind the process at all. Do you um, early on in a book, do you reach out to the Robinson family? And if so, you're nodding. So I assume, yes. Do you at all worry that you're going to reach out and they're going to say, well, we want money and you're going to say, I can't pay you money. And they're going to say, well, we're going to tell everyone not to cooperate with you. Well, I'll say that I, I definitely immediately reached out to the Robinsons and, and uh, you know, let, let Sharon and David and Rachel know that, that the book was happening. And I wasn't so worried about that. Um, I did have the experience of, of reaching out to Pete Rose and say, Pete, I'm doing a book on you. Um, and what did he want? He wanted money. And I, I just said to him, I said, listen, Pete, I, I, I can't give you $1. And it's not, I'm not, we're not haggling over it. It's just not going to be that kind of book. If I ever gave you money, that would be it. But so we're not, we're not haggling. I can't do it. 
And so then he said he wouldn't talk to me. He didn't shut down anybody. And it is kind of particular to people, but it's still kind of interesting. When I got, if I got to where he was, the public guy, if I get to him and he's signing autographs, I, he's fine. Let me sit right next to him and talk to him the whole time. Somebody else is paying for his time to right. be there signing autographs. As long as his, every hour of his day or as many hours of his day as you can convince somebody to be paying for him, then he's okay. So, and honestly, I don't begrudge him. Why should he? He doesn't need the publicity. You know, it's totally fine. I get it. It's great. Um, and so, so I, nah, I don't, I don't worry about it. I just, that's the way it's going to be. And, and, you know, I, I just be, I think the thing that you want to do, and I'm sure there's too few, be totally transparent about who you are and what you're trying to do. And that's it. And, and, you know, if you don't get to somebody for some reason like that, then you don't get to somebody. Do you, do you find it, um, maybe you love Pete Rose. I, I, I wouldn't call him an overly lovable character when you, do you find it harder writing about someone like Rose than someone about Jackie Robinson when you're devoting that much time to writing about a person who has some loathsome elements to him? In some ways, yes, Jeff, except the one thing that I do love about Pete Rose is the way he played baseball. And I will love that forever. I like love it. Just like Bart Giamatti loved Pete Rose. Bart Giamatti, he was Bart Giamatti's favorite player. You couldn't be around him. He's there five hours before the game hitting off a pitcher, then going out to pick up the balls in the outfield and coming back to them. Like he loved baseball so much and played it so incredibly. Now there's plenty of other things we can say about Pete that are not great. And that are, you know, that I didn't like, but that was my anchor in that. I always knew I could come back to, okay, I'm on common ground with this guy here. That's interesting. So that can carry you through a book. Even if you find someone unlikable, the fact that you loved him as a ball player, loved the way he plays, loves his mannerisms, will carry you through the dark times of a book. Yeah, but I, I also think the fact that he wasn't entirely likable makes the book more interesting. Mm. You know, um, and I think DiMaggio also was, could be cold and aloof, and, and it makes it a little more interesting than if somebody is, is just a, an all-around swell guy. So right. it doesn't bother me. Like, if, if I felt that I was writing about somebody who was truly heinous or, like, you know, physically abusive or, or you know, just a bad, bad person, I don't know. I haven't really done that. Um, at, at book length, certainly, you know, you, you run across characters sometimes like that in, in sports writing, but um, magazine writing. But so, yeah, I mean, in some way, it, it, it doesn't matter to me if I like somebody or not. Right. Um, when you come across other books on your subject, uh, you know, P. Rose wrote a book with Roger Kahn. Obviously, Richard Ben Kramer wrote the sort of legendary DiMaggio book. There Jonathan Eig, a bunch of guys did Jackie Robinson books. I always have a little bit of internal jealousy. Like I read the books, I take notes throughout, but I'm like, God damn it. God damn it. Ugh, this is really good. This is hard. Blah, 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 blah. You know, it's a lot of inner turmoil. I really hate. I, in a lot of ways, I hate reading them, but I know I need to read them. How do you treat the other works of other authors? It's, it's good. I'd say it's not so different from what you just described. I think you and I are pretty similar in that case. Um, and again, especially when it's, um, you know, what's really easy is when somebody writes a really lazy, dull book on the subject, then you go through it and it's like, Oh, you know, th that's great. Right? That's great. <laughs> like, the best. But, but when, but when people have written really well, done great reporting, written eloquently, both um, sure. It makes it, it makes it, um, yeah, you get a little envious, or you, but it also, I guess, informs you. I, I, I still find it sort of 
an information gathering process, even that. But 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 my process is a little bit similar to what you just described. Yeah. Um, wait, I have to ask you this question because I'm about to go through this process. I'm not asking okay. you to steal this from you. I'm actually fascinated. <laughs> asking for blurbs is probably my least favorite part of the whole process. Yeah. You got blurbs on this book from Ken Burns and John Grisham. How? I don't mean how, like, give me their numbers. I mean, how are you able to? Yeah. Get- yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, they, you know, they, they, the, the key in the situation is to get the book to somebody and see if they'll take a look at it. And um, in both those cases, they were, they were interested enough to take a look at the book. You, you have no idea. I don't know them personally. I know neither one of them personally. Um, and they, you know, I knew somebody who knew John, the network knew somebody who knew John Grisham and, and sure, he'd be happy to, you know, take a look. I don't know. And then one day in comes the blurb, same with Ken Burns. Um, so they, you know, that, that's really it. I wish it was more, it, it, it's neither more nor less sophisticated than that. Was it, was it Ken Burns, the noted baseball historian or Ken Burns, Secaucus's greatest mechanic? <laughs> I'm actually not sure, but either way, I, I'm great. Either way, I'm grateful the person liked the book. I got to ask you a final question. I ask this of everyone on who does this podcast. I always ask, what is the greatest confrontation or awkward moment you've had in your career as a journalist? There was a time when when Paul Coffey, the great great defenseman, uh, was playing at the end of his career, and I think he was with Carolina, and. I was, I was writing the NHL column and it was this kind of, it was this, it was this period in Coffey's career when nobody, he was such a great player and nobody wanted to say anything that he wasn't, he wasn't at that level anymore. And I wrote it in my column and I wrote it kind of unequivocally and I got a call the next day from the head of NHL PR, from the PR of the team, local writers were interviewing uh, Coffee about what he thought about it. Um, nobody said I was wrong. And I had a lot of like, you know, as one does, and, and I know you, you've done when you have a ticklish thing, I meant to, you know, supported any sort of suggestion that I was making about him not playing well, but what other players were saying and things like that. Sometimes... <laughs> you know, not with, not for attribution. Um, that was probably the time I had somebody angriest at me, you know, and, and, and it's, it's funny, Jeff, because it, in, in terms of honesty as a journalist, no, no regrets. Like what I couldn't have gone and written some story about, it. he's still the greatest event, right? You had to say he's changed. But when I, particularly as time goes on, you look at like the greatest things in life, uh, the bigger things in life, I, I mean, Eh, did he need, did I need to say that? Probably not, you know? So I have some regret about it a little bit. I had a kind of interesting experience when I did this story on Marty McSorley. Do you remember the defenseman for the Kings? Really great guy, um, even though a big, um, you know, thug, obviously, in the, in the league. And he had been suspended for hitting um, Donald Bashir across the side of the head with his um, with his stick. It was, it was, I think it was the largest suspension at that time in the league. Uh, it, it, we ended up being suspended for a year. And th- the way he agreed to do the interview, I was in a r- hotel room in Manhattan Beach for basically like two days 
with Marty Mitsuri and his agent or PR guy, Paul Kelly. I, I think he was his agent. Um, and like calls were coming in from like all, Rick Tockett and all these guys around the league. Um, and then he, I wrote, I think, a pretty even-handed story, um, which neither he nor the NHL were happy with. <laughs> and that's when I felt like I'd done a pretty good job. Totally. The editors at SI were very happy with it, but neither of them were happy with it, which <laughs> made me feel like, okay. They, again, they didn't, you hate it when you feel like you got something wrong, right? And we've all done it, right? Even if it's just a spelling of a name or something, it's like, ugh, I got that wrong. But if, if people are upset, somebody once said that the thing you want after you, after somebody reads the profile you wrote of them is stony silence. That's what you want. Yeah. They don't really have anything to argue about, but they're not happy with it. Yeah, that's good. I agree. You never want an athlete saying that was awesome, but you don't want an athlete saying that was a hit job. You just want them to say, right. you got it right. Um, let me ask you a final, final, final question. Sure, sure. Okay, last night I was flying home from Florida and the movie 42 appeared on the airplane. Um, I watch it and I'm not a Robinson expert the way you are. I watch it and I feel like throwing things at the TV. Is that misguided? Am I missing the point of that movie? Is it actually a good sports movie that I am treating poorly? Uh, well, I really liked the movie a lot and I thought it was, it's an early, uh, <laughs> it's an, you know, Damn it. it's, an early, it's an early Chadwick Boseman and actually at SI, um, I interviewed Boseman about his role in that. It was long before Black Panther, before he had risen to what he, what he became um, and talked about his sort of experience inhabiting Jackie. Uh, you know, I, I liked the movie in the way that I like For the Love of the Game with Kevin Costner which had Vin Scully in the background and you got a little baseball and you all feel good. Right. I, I, I don't know if I would run out and say, Hey, you know, uh, this is the next Casablanca, but if I could watch that on a flight home from Florida, sign me up. I mean, that's like, I don't know. I feel like what's not to like, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, you know, easy to digest. Wait, have you seen the, um, the two movies that were playing sports movies? 42, and then the movie about Kurt Warner, the Rams quarterback. I haven't seen that one. Like, underdog? Underdog. So, in the movie, they use... They, I mean, I'm sure you and I combined have probably seen 500 sports movies. In the movie, they use um, footage, actual footage from 1999, 2000, whatever, when Kurt Warner was playing. But the uniforms they wear, they made for the actors, the numbers are about 70% smaller than the numbers the players were actually wearing at the time. So you always see all of a sudden the numbers are smaller and bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller and bigger. And I just felt like laughing, crying. I, I feel like I'm a horrible audience for sports movies, the worst audience for sports movies. So, so what's your favorite sports movie? Probably Bo Durham. Oh, no. Me League too. of Their Own. League of Their Own. Those are one and two for me. That's exactly what I would say, Jeff. Exactly what I would say. One and two. Well, Kasia, listen, the book is awesome. It really is. It's beautiful. It's great. It's lovely. I'm excited for you. I'm happy for you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I really, truly appreciate it. Jeff, it's, I mean, it's great to be talking with you. Uh, I wish we talk more often. It's great to be on here and uh, love the podcast. So it's my honor to be on here with you. I want to thank today's guest, Kostya Kennedy, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Kostya on Twitter at Kostya Kennedy and purchase True, the four seasons of Jackie Robinson, wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. 
I make no coin for doing this podcast and rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. <laughs>